Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So let's imagine that you're kind of a rock and roll person, and which people are more than they are anything else these days. But you hear from time to time some old geezer like me, for example, referencing the Great American Songbook or just the American Songbook, which is kind of the same thing as jazz standards, but maybe not exactly. You have no idea what we're talking about or some idea of what we're talking about. So I thought we would do a show where we kind of pinned this down a little bit and talked about some of the virtues uh, and, and peculiarities of the American Songbook and also the worry that as old geezers, shall we say delicately, age out of the process, there are going to be fewer and fewer people with any real direct connection to this music, which is so much of the fabric of American culture, or at least it used to be. I guess if it dies out, it won't be the fabric anymore. I'm not sure. I'm not good with fabrics, but I am good with songs, and so are our guests after this news. I won't dance. Don't ask me. I won't dance. Don't ask me. I won't dance, madame, with you. My heart won't let my feet do things they should do. You know what? You're lovely. And so what? I'm lovely. That, of course, is the song I Won't Dance, and that, of course, is the late Tony Bennett and presumably the early Lady Gaga uh, singing it together a few years ago. Um, We're going to talk, first of all, that's a song with a really weird backstory that I don't think I have time to tell you right now because we have a lot of music we want to get through today. But yes, this whole thing began, this conversation began a few weeks ago on a lawn overlooking Long Island Sound in Old Saybrook, and the two guests you're about to meet and I were there, and... The police came, and during our arraignment, we discussed maybe doing this show. Uh, but we were all talking about the Great American Songbook, and I suddenly realized that's a tune, that's a term, or sometimes just American Songbook, or sometimes standard or jazz standard. All these terms kind of get thrown around a lot, and I'm not really sure they mean the same thing to everybody. And I also worry, we all do worry, about what happens as the people who really had direct contact with this music begin to kind of age out of the process, to put it euphemistically. So joining us today, uh, Joelle Lurie is a vocalist, songwriter, voiceover artist, and band leader. Steve Metcalf, who's been on the show many, many, many times, uh, is founder and director of the Garmany Concert Series at the University of Hartford's Hart School, and of course, a great musician, uh, songwriter, and all kinds of other things. So so let's get this started. And so Metcalf, I'm going to go to you first, because yeah, I mean, American Songbook, Great American Songbook, these are terms that are used without necessarily being precisely defined, and maybe they shouldn't be precisely defined. Maybe they have to accommodate a lot of different ideas and tastes, but what, what are your ideas and tastes about this? <laughs> well, very quickly, I think that the term Great American Songbook, if we all seem to agree that it tends to mean 
this body of work that got written between the early 20s and and basically the mid 50s when rock and roll arrived and that's what the great american songbook is that that's fine i mean if if that's what we want to call it then we should call it that i i do think however that when we use the term standard we're talking about something else we're talking about a song that lives on beyond its initial period of popularity and is and is performed and reinterpreted by subsequent generations of singers and musicians and and the idea of standards clearly goes on and on and are continuing to be written today and so people who say well no they don't write standards anymore i i think are simply incorrect whereas if if you mean the songbook isn't being replicated anymore well that's that's right if if we decide decide that the songbook ended in the in the 50s basically right and we're going to see whether we can stretch that a, a little bit but but joel you are considerably younger than steve and i who were born during the neolithic era uh, and first learned <laughs> to play music with stone tools um and yet this music is very important to you and um i, I rather than have you start talking about it i think i'm going to play a song for you that i know you want to talk about anyway and then let's talk about sort of the relevance that it might have for somebody say Joel's, Joel's, I'm going to stay about 30 to 35 years younger than we are, something like that. Uh, all right, I'm 41. So, <laughs> I didn't want to get specific. Uh, so Steve and I are both 127. So um, the, uh, this, you're going to hear a little bit of Stacey Kent singing the song, I've Got a Crush on You. Here we go, Gene A1. I've got a crush on you. Sweetie pie. All the day and night time Hear me sigh I never had the least notion That I could fall With so much emotion So, and apologies for fading these things kind of fast, but we've got a lot of material to get through. So... So, yeah, react to that, Joel. Just talk about sort of what it means to you at the age of now that we're being specific, 41. Sure. I mean, I think I fell in love with the Great American Songbook, which I agree with Steve. That was beautifully put. Uh, when I got an Ella Fitzgerald kind of compilation CD at Costco, um, you know, in the early 90s and fell in love with those tunes and would listen to it all the time, loved the warmth of her voice. Um, Stacey Ken, I love that she is a more modern singer and storyteller. I was just saying that I think the best singers are um, are the storytellers. And that goes for Broadway too, right? It's best uh, best actress in a musical, not best singer in a musical. So I think that's important to 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 capture. But um, Stacey Kent, what a kind of delicious and simple, um, but thoughtful and smart kind of interpreter of the Great American Songbook. And yes, she's singing those standards that Steve talked about, where those real classics that, you know, the number one hits of that pop era, because that's what that was. That was, that was their era of pop song. Right. So, but I think the the other part of this is that it's a song about you know longing and love and love that may be requited, may not be requited, and in that sense, it isn't really pinned, Joel. I think to a specific time. But say a little bit more about that. Agreed. I totally agree. I think we could probably find a couple songs in Taylor Swift's era to eras tour that probably capture the same theme. I mean, and many, many more. Right. There's so many songs about unrequited love. So I love how these these themes from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. I mean, 
yeah, I, I could give a million examples from my own life and from other women in their 30, 40, 30s and 40s, other men in their 30s and 40s. So it's it's a modern theme that li lives on and will always live on. Um, it's what we talk about with friends. It's what we gossip about. And these songs um, from yesterday and today capture those unrequited feelings. And, and they're often called torch songs from mm. yesteryear. So and I love I love that that um that name, torch yeah. songs. So let's go back to this question of where the period ends, because I mean, I think Metcalf, you did put that very eloquently and it's kind of hard to argue with that. But just for the fun of arguing with that. I have a hard time believing that this next song is not part of the American songbook. This is A2, Gene. A chair is still a chair Even when there's no one sitting there But I And a house is not a home when there's no one there. You know, if only Luther could bring some very specific kinds of stylings to this, I think he could really make it come alive. So, but Metcalf, what about that? I mean, I feel like, yes, the American Songbook era kind of ends around the time that Richard Rodgers is kind of doing his last work. Except that, is there maybe a Backrack and David carve-out somehow? I mean, don't they kind of belong in this conversation at least a little bit? Well, I think they belong at the top of the list in terms of more modern songwriters whose work absolutely are standards. I mean, you you can hardly think of of a Bach rock tune that became a legitimate hit. And by the way, House is Not a Home only barely qualifies because right. it, it wasn't a huge hit. But you can hardly think of one of their enduring songs that really isn't a standard now because they are in fact done by all kinds of artists and they are reinterpreted uh, or, or covered as we now like to say by such a wide range of artists that they, they qualify in exactly the same way that Stardust qualifies. And, and so when people say, gee, and, and by the way, Colin, I don't, I don't think we need to make a carve out for Bach, Rock and David. I mean, I think if we're doing that, we have to do a carve out for Lennon and McCartney and mm. we have to do a carve out for mm. Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon be because a good portion of their tunes qualify on the very same grounds, which is to say they live on, they're done by a variety of artists, they are reinterpretable, and they continue to have a life. So mm. if that's not a standard, then I, I don't know what the term means. So, yeah, but maybe not the American Songbook. Uh, uh, I think a fair, well, Yeah, uh, but, a fair but as I say, the, the Songbook, we can define if we want mm -hmm. as a historical period or or call it the golden era or whatever it is. But but just don't say, oh, there's no more standards. Right. No, no absolutely. Um, so so I, just by chance, uh, I'm going to a wedding this weekend. Uh, and so, Joelle, one of the places I think that American Songbook songs still may surface and survive uh, and be asked for uh, is a, a wedding. And so say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think you have some knowledge of this whole phenomenon. Phenomenon. What are people likely to maybe even ask for at a wedding? I want you both to talk about that. But Joelle, you get us started. Yeah, great question. I ran a professional wedding band for 15 years on the East Coast and played all over. And yes, a common theme is picking these these standards and the, the basic hits, which actually that, that the standards, the classics, um, you know, um, uh, when I fall in love or, um, 
you know, someone to watch over me, um, you know, fly me to the moon. But isn't that fantastic? That's a great that's a great example of a place where there are all these different generations at a wedding celebrating. And it's a place where these songs can live on and be celebrated. And that's great. Kids can hear it. And and it, the tunes and the melodies just get passed along and passed along and they mean something. So I think it's it's wonderful that it's played at weddings, even if it's overdone. Yeah, well, I should say that at the end of the movie, The Wedding Singer, not that this is a particularly exalted example, but having sung, sung kind of rock and pop songs all the way through, Adam Sandler does That's All, which is like a 1950s, you know, big band tune, um, and yeah. uh, and does an okay version with it. To, so, Metcalf, before you wave, uh, you weigh in here, let's sort of, kind of maybe even set the mood a little bit uh, for uh, a song that might be called out at a wedding. Uh, here's A3. This is Frank Sinatra. Someday, when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. So, so take it, take it away, Metcalf. Talk about weddings and music like this. Well, first of all, I think uh, Joelle said uh, a very important thing a minute ago, which is, you know, you have at weddings as almost no other event, um, multi-generations getting together and, <laughs> and dancing together. Um, so the so the repertoire obviously has to cover a lot of years, which, which is one of the things that makes weddings such a great musical uh, laboratory. Uh, you know, I was—I don't know if I've even told you this, Colin, but I had a conversation once with with the great Paul Landerman. You know, who mm -hmm. was a musician, and, friend, friend of both of us, yeah, and booking artist, as as some of you folks may not know. And anyway, he was telling me something I didn't know about the wedding business back in the early fifties, mid fifties, which was that for a few years. Uh, when you put a wedding on, you had to hire two bands because the kids wanted to hear rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And the older musicians not only didn't know those tunes, but they pointedly refused to, to play them. <laughs> and, and yet to make everybody happy, uh, you, you had to sort of cover both uh, of those musical bases. So, so he had to scramble around as a booking agent and, and uh, engage two bands for weddings for a few years. Needless to say, that didn't last all that long. But I, but I thought it was an interesting little kind of moment in time that, that in, a, in a way sort of uh, emblemizes uh, the, the transition that we had in the 50s from the old, uh, you know, from the old songbook repertoire to wh whatever it was that was coming later. Nowadays, of course, it's all, it's all jumbled up and, and uh, a, a wedding can feature all, all of these things, and I think does. The, the other quick thing I would say is that I think weddings also point up an interesting fact uh, about what makes a standard, by which I mean that not every song that was a big hit um, can become a standard for various reasons. And I'm thinking particularly of all the single ladies, which at any wedding I've been into, uh, been to in the last 20 years, has to be, or at least if there's a disc jockey there, has to be part of the lineup. But but that's as great a song as that is. It's not really, um, I would argue, a standard because it it kind of can't be 
reinterpreted or redone in any meaningful way. I mean, it just, it belongs to her. It was obviously created for her and she kind of owns it in a way that I think is not to be replicated. Joelle, do you, do you know what I'm trying to say here? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. How can you really replicate that song? I think the Paul, um, the Paul Anka version is very lovely, actually. I've got to listen to it. No, no, there's don't knock Paul. Don't knock Paul. <laughs> he, he fits in here somewhere. Yeah, and I, I, can I just say one thing about the way you look tonight, too, which is, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the lyrics in, in the next segment, but, you know, that's a song, I think this is our second Dorothy Fields lyric of this show already, because uh, right. she, she punched up the lyrics to I Won't Dance. Uh, and But... There's something about that song that it really kind of is perfect for. It starts in the future, which is unusual, right? It says someday when I'm awfully low, mm-hmm. uh, and then it's mm-hmm. going to be about thinking back uh, and thinking back to the way you look tonight. Well, I'm I'm almost getting verklempt thinking about that with a wedding because it, mm-hmm. it it is it is sort of about maybe how you're going to think about your your husband or wife on the day that you got married 20 years from now. It's it's perfect in a way that it, it's hard to think of a like a, con, a contemporary pop tune that could do the same thing but yeah go ahead joel no i agree and that's probably the number one request that tune but we don't know yet right there could be um 20 years from now we could revisit a song of lady gaga's and i don't mean the lady gaga bennett album Mm -hmm. i mean one of her other projects and maybe there's a song on that that really you know kind of reinvents itself right um i mean I mean, we've seen songs um, uh, reinvent themselves from TV shows, right? And then get a million, you yeah. know, hits on Spotify. So we have no idea what's going to happen, what could reemerge. No, absolutely the case. So, you know, one thing that uh, you were pointing out in our emails, and we don't have enough time to really dwell on this, Metcalf, but there's a way in which, you know, some of the things we think of as rock and roll tunes, uh, Are You Lonesome Tonight was actually written in 1926, Dion and the Belmonts do Where or When, which is written in 1937, The Beatles did Till There Was You, uh, which uh, is from a, a musical that Steve and I know perhaps too well from the 1950s. Uh, and But there's also a way in which I think a lot of these songs, if you hear them right now, they can sound very contemporary. So we're going to play two versions of the same song, uh, but I want you to li- everybody to listen to the first version, uh, and then, Joelle, I'll ask you my question about this. So this is uh, Liz Wright, uh, who's a terrific singer, singing a song called I'm Confessing. Here we go, A4. I'm confessing that I love you Tell me, do you love me too? I'm confessing that I need you, honest I do, I need you every moment, in your eyes I read such strange things. So, what I, what my thought about this, Joel, and feel free to disagree, I feel like if I, heard, if I didn't know that song, if you didn't know that song, and you just heard it on Spotify today, You'd have no trouble believing it was written quite recently. I mean, there isn't anything about that song. Obviously, Liz Wright is going for a somewhat contemporary arrangement of it. But to me, that song sounds very much like a song that could have come out of some songwriter in 2023. Absolutely. And I love that. And I love the surprise someone might find when they Google it. And you mentioned Till There Was You. Many people might just think that's a Beatles song, right? They don't know. They don't know that it came from before, like like you mentioned. Um I love it that that these arrangements are being perceived in this modern way. I mean, how how wonderful that they're continuing. Right. This even, if, even if poorly, yeah. even if poorly in some yeah. not in that case, but yeah. in other yes. cases. 
Nick, what can I jump in with yeah. another? Well, I was just going to say as another, to me, interesting example, because uh, it, it was relatively recently that I understood the history of this, is, is the Etta James at last, which, which is another wedding thing. staple at, at weddings, um, and which certainly to my ears sounds like a very, uh, of its time, kind of 12-8, you know, R&B ballad. But in fact, dates back to the 30s and was recorded in, initially, I believe, by Glenn Miller, with a with obviously a very different feel. But but in Edda's hands, doesn't it doesn't really sound like an old song being redone by a modern artist? It's like a a song of its time, which uh, which I think speaks both to Edda and the songwriters, but it's uh, but it's an interesting example of that. Yeah, I just want to actually play a little bit of, so I think this song has such a, this I'm Confessing has a really weird history, even for a great American songbook song. It actually was um, recorded with different lyrics, which is not that uncommon. Uh, it was recorded as Looking for Another Sweetie, and it seems to have almost come out of Black Vaudeville a little bit, uh, and it was recorded by Fats Waller, uh, and then in 1930, a guy named Alan Nybrook wrote these new lyrics for it. And still, I think it kind of kicked around a little bit. Uh, and then uh, in the mid-40s, a certain Peggy Lee uh, did this. This is A5, uh, Gene, I'm confessing again. I'm confessing that I love you. Tell me, do you love me too? I'm confessing that I need you. See, Joel, he hear it here, and it, sound, it sounds like it comes from a prior time, um, which, I mean, it's to your point, really, what an arrangement can do. And we should give major props to the people who do those arrangements and those reharmonizations. I mean, it's incredible what, what, what they can do. All right, so we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about singers and I hope also talk a little bit more about lyrics. But uh, we're going to go out of this segment with uh, a song sung by a very exciting new singer. Her name is Joelle Lurie. Here we go. The snow is snowing and the wind is blowing, but I can weather the storm. Where do I it may storm I've got my love to keep me warm I can't remember Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
by the fire while the breeze on high sang a lullaby you'd be Oh, I hate to fade that one. Uh, that's Sarah Vaughn singing, of course, You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To. Uh, we're talking today with Joelle Lurie, vocalist, songwriter, voiceover artist, and bandleader. You just heard her on the way out of the last segment. Steve Metcalf, who's uh, our musical savant uh, here at all times and the founder and director of the Garmony Concert Series at the University of Hartford's Hart School, and so many other things besides. So I want to talk a little bit about singers here. And you know, Metcalf, there's a way in which I, I, I played that specific song for a reason, uh, because you know, growing up in the rock and roll era, I I had a hard time initially with the American Songbook, and it struck me as corny and not cool. And I was kind of like the Keegan Michael Key character in Schmigadoon, particularly that first <laughs> season of Schmigadoon. Like I just didn't want to hear songs about corn pudding, uh, and and then hearing somebody like Sarah Vaughan sing it and swing it a different way. You know, Steve, there was a way in which I sort of suddenly thought, oh, no, I really should be listening to all of this music. The singer's important, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, obviously. And, and um, you know, she's such a great artist. You know, there's an interesting there's an interesting little vignette about Sarah Vaughan because she had one certifiable kind of pop hit that that nobody seems to talk about anymore called Broken Hearted Melody. And reportedly, she herself hated the song it wasn't really a jazz tune it had a kind of a i don't know sort of a little rinky dink uh feel to it although the lyrics were actually by hal david but my point is that when you go back and and look at the sheet music to broken hearted melody it's a very dull song and a very kind of predictable song but in her hands it's like this amazing little <laughs> piece of vocal athleticism that she does. I mean, she, she really makes it into something, I think, very, very interesting. And despite the fact that she supposedly didn't like it, uh, it's it's an example of how a truly great artist, and Sarah Vaughn was absolutely that, can, can totally transform a piece of music, you know? I mean just like Coltrane did with, with my favorite things and stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, it's just an incredible gift that uh, I, I guess I would have to say primarily jazz people have, but also, also others, others like Joel, you know? Right. So yeah, we have a great singer here. So talk a little bit about singers and talk maybe, maybe about the singers who have meant something to you, Joel, as they cover some of this material. Yeah. I mean, I'll start with Sarah Vaughn. She's absolutely a favorite, but somebody I think I didn't really couldn't understand the lyrics of her songs until I was a little bit older, right? Singing like the song, You Don't Know What Love Is, right? That's the song when you hear it and try to sing it at 15, it's like kind of laughable. You got to re-experience it at, you know, the riper age of 37 or so. <laughs> but um, I love Sarah Vaughn's like the, the, the way she did Maria and I Feel Pretty um, from West Side Story. I mean, not just live in Sweden, like really just uh, incredible. But the warmth of her of her voice, the fact that it it's like classical, but jazzy and her phrasing is just so luscious. Um, and I think she learned to sing in like the Baptist church um, and played piano too. I mean, she's, she's remarkable and definitely like a more um, kind of almost sophisticated, I think, version of Ella, mm -hmm. I would say, perhaps. I yeah. love her. Ella's a favorite. And Julie London is a a real favorite of mine. I'm about to reveal something about just how nerdy Metcalf and I are uh, about music, <laughs> <laughs> which is that we had, 
I wouldn't call it an argument, but a slight disagreement that stretched over several weeks this summer, including the drive home from Old Saybrook after the night we gathered (laughs) with you about Julie London's London's version of me and my shadow. This is so sad that we could actually sustain (laughs) two conversations (laughs) about this. It was actually yeah. Julie London versus Mandy Patinkin. But Metcalf, like how many people driving through the rain on a summer <laughs> night uh, at like 11 o'clock at night would be discussing Julie London singing Me and My Shadow? Well, as I recall, I tried several conversational gambits and, you know, you, <laughs> you, you came back with nothing. So this was the best we could do. Yeah. My point, incidentally, was that the song is inherently sentimental and and Mandy's version kind of reflected and respected that, whereas Julie's was a little hipper and drier, and I didn't think it suited the song. Right. So, but you, but yeah, I'm correct. <laughs> so, actually, I've sort of come around to the fact, even though I think the Mandy Pinnick version is kind of creepy, that you're still right because it's sort of a creepy song. Um, all right, so I want to stay with Sarah Vaughn for a second, too, because yeah. I should have said this when we played uh, the Stacey Kent thing at the beginning. I should have said, listen to the beginning, because this is going to be on the test. Uh, but uh, the, you, may, you may remember that Stacey Kent goes right into singing, I've got a crush on you. I mean, she sings those words as the first words. So here's the Sarah Vaughn version, because there's something I want to talk to both of these panelists or guests here about. Here's B2, Gene. I can't even play the whole thing, but she hasn't sung I've Got a Crush on You yet. She hasn't sung those words. And so that's right. what's called, and, and there are various terms for it. A lot of singers just call it the verse, which is a little bit confusing. But, Joelle, these introductions are a big part of the Great American Songbook. Uh, and sometimes jazz singers think, ah, eh, I'm just going to skip it, get right to the point. But there's a whole thing about singing them, too. I, just give me some of your thoughts. Oh, it's the best part. And I think it shows that you have chops and that you want to really also honor the song, honor the lyricists, honor the composer. I mean, that is the meat that sets it up so beautifully. And the goosebumps I have listening to Sarah Vaughn sing that is just incredible. I mean, what a storyteller. The phrasing is is conversational almost, right? I mean, I think that's how I fell in love with singing is listening to these singers make it conversational and set up a melody so perfectly, like tee it up. You know, it's a chef's kiss. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, Metcalf, I know you have strong thoughts about this, too. Are we going to call this the verse? I mean, it, it's complicated, but that's the... Well, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's what most people these days call it, and it, it, it or the introductory verse or whatever. You know, Michael Feinstein uh, speaks eloquently about this topic, uh, and, and needless to say, insists that uh, to do a song from from that era properly you have to do mm-hmm. the verse and it really is true that some songs including that one by the way uh have verses that are like miraculous little creations in their own right i mean mm-hmm. you listen to the verse of um uh da 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 da, da stardust mm-hmm. and first of all it's like a third of the song <laughs> but secondly it's it's just a it's just a beautiful haunting piece of work in its own right i mean you could stop at the end of the verse and you'd have a hit um <laughs> I, I, I think of that being true for younger than springtime and a whole bunch of other well yeah songs. you have to include time and again i dreamed of adventure that's the beginning of all oh, the things oh, you are all, that, all the things yeah absolutely. That, that might be the most amazing verse of them all uh, but yeah, this is—it's an interesting part of it. it. It exists a little bit in pop music these days, but not very much. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about lyrics too. Uh, we don't—we don't—we could do a whole show about lyrics, but we're—we're going to play another song that we played at the beginning here, but we're going to play it by a different person. Uh, this is Fred Astaire singing "I Won't Dance" B three. <laughs> I won't dance, don't ask me. I won't dance, don't ask me. I won't dance, madam, with you. My heart won't let my feet do things they should do. Say, you know what? You're lovely. You know what? You're lovely. But oh, what you do to me. I'm like an ocean wave that's bumped on the shore I feel so absolutely stumped on the floor When you dance you're charming and you're gentle Especially when you do the continental But this feeling isn't purely mental For heaven rest us, I'm not asbestos, and that's why I want... So, Joel, you know, there's a whole theory, I think, in the the world of American Songbook that uh, Fred Astaire, although he didn't really have this fabulous set of pipes, was somebody who could really get a song across. And I think the way those lyrics come across there, too, you know, he doesn't... Your focus isn't on him. It's on this song. It's on the melody and the lyrics. And, of course, those Dorothy Fields, I think the, these are going to be the Dorothy Fields lyrics that were punched up for the movie version of this song. They're so terrific, right? Incredible. I love how he sings with a little wink. Um, I mean, those, those lyrics lend itself perfectly. But, yes, it's the phrasing. It's the way he's relishing certain words, right? The way he says heaven, right? So he's really thinking about the story, and he's allowing the lyrics to shine rather than just his voice because he knows he can't count on that right he's not a technical singer so he's making the word shine the lyric sign which i think is such a beautiful way to yeah it's, it's a story he's telling the story beautifully so um and and so i think you know there's another thing about this and i th- think i can quickly illustrate it gene do you see b4 in there is b4 available 
Okay, just we're, Metcalf. I'm going to play a little bit of, of this. Is actually a Volkswagen Passat commercial, but I think it's going to make an interesting point. Uh, here we go. Before I'm burning out this useless telephone. My hair is gone all alone. Burning up the room with cheap cologne. The musty motor home. I'm the rocket man. Rocket man. So these are people trying to sing the song Rocket Man, uh, but they don't know the words. And Steve, the reason they don't know the words is that Elton John doesn't enunciate very well. And there's just a lot of production covering words in, in pop songs these days. And there's a way in which I think, you feel free to disagree, but I feel like the American Songbook songs, they demand that you listen to the words. They demand that the lyrics be sung in a way that they, they can be heard. And you don't get so many of these so-called mondegreens, I think, with, with American Songbook. But, but your thoughts? Maestro. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, this is one of those topics. It's hard to sound not like an old cranky guy, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think the pri- the primacy and the and the sheer cleverness and, and wit of some of the of some of the lyrics of, of the Golden Age stuff is, you know, in many respects, absolutely as important as the tune in the arrangement whereas as a if we want to generalize i think a lot of post rock and roll especially heavily produced stuff like elton um you know it really is emphasizing the sort of sound world of the record more than more than the lyrics you know per se of course i mean i i love a lot of early elton early elton but you know all that sugar bear and st- stuff. I mean, lyrics weren't always front and center for Elton, I, I think, in terms of his peak accomplishments. But um, but it, but it's true that the that the sound of a record is more is more what I think people latch onto, and and there are reasons for that. I mean, there's like you listen to the car, you listen on earbuds, uh, you, you know, you're 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 sort of getting a general wash of sound, and and I think in many respects, that's what listeners respond to these days. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the irony is Elton John is one of the few people who kind of has a dedicated lyricist, Bernie Taupin, who doesn't do anything else, uh, which is very mm-hmm. common, Joel, in the, oh, yeah, that's true. I didn't... in the Great American Songbook era, you've got Ira Gershwin. That's his job. He writes lyrics. Dorothy Fields writes lyrics. There, you know, Johnny Burke mostly writes lyrics, although he also writes music. But I mean, there are a lot of people who just worked as lyricists. I'm going to, we're going to talk about one mm-hmm. of them in the next segment. That's not so true anymore. You know, usually mm-hmm. there isn't such a thing as a lyricist. And Joel, I think that's because even if we go back to I've got a crush on you, that story, you said it, it's storytelling, right? Absolutely. It is storytelling. Again, again, I always go back to the best actress in musical kind of parallel. But something else I thought about when listening to that commercial, and I think this ties into it, is we're in this um, era of this generation of American Idol and The Voice and YouTube where it's like we're going to prove our, our the talent of our, our singing chops. Right. And so I think we have lost that art of that. Of, of those lyrics and honoring the people who do that and do that so well. That's their niche. That's what they do. Now it's right. You hear the scooping and the stylistic stuff, which I like too, and I can do, but um, it, that's not storytelling. That's, that's a little bit of showing off and, and that's okay too. There's a time and there's a place for that too. Um, but I think, yeah, just going back to the the simple parts of a beautiful song, right? The lyrics, the storytelling, that is number one. All right, we're going to take a little break right now. We have one more segment to go here. We want to talk a little bit about the present and the future. So let's do that after this. Thanks, Gene.
Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely nights dreaming of a song, the melody haunts my reverie, and I am once again with you. All right, so uh, we're doing the show today. has It has an inordinate amount of recorded elements to it. Uh, so we brought in the big guy, the big gun, the Jedi Master. Eugene Amatruda is our technical producer today. Jonathan McPants uh, is uh, the producer of this particular episode. I should quickly mention that a week from tomorrow, well, if you're listening to the podcast, that's not helpful, September 9th, uh, Saturday, September 9th, I have not done anything in front of a live audience since Metcalf and I and two other people did a show about Laura Nero, which was January 29th and 2020. <laughs> in 2020. I, not counting lawns and Old Saybrook. I have not been in front of a live audience. Uh, and I'm going to be uh, at the Mark Twain House with an author whose work I just love so much I had to do this. His name is Adrian McKinty. He's from Northern Ireland. Originally, he writes just terrific kinds of detective fiction. And so uh, check the Mark Twain House website uh, and see if you would like to come and join us on Saturday, September 9th. All right. So enough with plugs. Uh, Joel Lurie is vocalist, songwriter, voiceover artist, and band leader. Steve Metcalf, founder and director of the Garmini Concert Series at the University of Hartford's Hart School. So much besides that as well. So the other conversation that we had that day, that night in Old Saybrook, and, and Metcalf, I heard you have it with our hosts, is that idea. So you, sometimes accompanied by me, but mainly you, have been going to all kinds of places, to all kinds of groups to play music or sometimes play and talk about music for decades now. Uh, and you talked about the difference between going into a place that was you know, primarily populated by people with either gray or white hair, say 15 or 20 years ago, as to what, as opposed to what it's like now in terms of what kind of music they might like to hear or sing along to. So just take that baton and go with it. Cause it, in a way it's the genesis of the show we're doing right now. Yeah. Well, I, I think I was talking to you about a, a thing that happened to me a couple of months ago when I was out at one of the retirement communities, uh, which seems to be, where my fan base is primarily concentrated these days. And I, and I did do a little presentation, actually a presentation about melody and what makes a great melody or tune. And to illustrate this talk, I just kind of off the top of my head played on the piano, played, you know, some Rogers and Hammerstein and some Cole Porter tunes and stuff. And for, you know, as long as I've been doing this, you can kind of count on people of that ilk to, you know, to gently hum along or sing along or whatever it is. And you have a sense that, you know, you're, you're playing the music that means something to them. And all of a sudden, to my amazement and sort of astonishment, I realized that, that many, if not most of the folks out there in this rather large room uh, were, were not doing that. And, and I, I had this kind of sudden feeling that we had suddenly turned a page in the musical culture where where those songs are no longer reliably the songs that these people grew up with and and as i thought about it you know as as you and i were talking but as i uh, even on that day came driving home i i realized you know well gee you know mccartney is like 80 something now and mick jagger is 80 and so uh, it it's time to stop expecting 
that these folks are going to necessarily know the music from Oklahoma or South Pacific. And so I, I just had to do a little readjust. And it's, you know, it's in, in some ways inevitable, obviously. It's just a little startling is all. And at least I hope some of those tunes will uh, will survive somehow or other. But it's But it's clearly passing from living memory. Right. So, and Joel, that raises the question. How does a young thing like you uh, come to know and love this music? How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, it really does come back to uh, Costco in Waltham, Massachusetts <laughs> that day when I got that uh, Ella Fitzgerald compilation album. Um, I don't know. I don't know what a past life or something. Something resonated with me with, with her voice and um, and I'm grateful it did. I really hope it passes down. I think these songs evoke memories of our generation above just like a recipe would and i think i you know and i and i i'm grateful that gaga put out some new to really any any commercial artist that can prolong these hits um i'm i'm grateful for but no I, it just resonated with me and I, I think there are a lot of people i mean all over new york there are people my age and younger who still play these tunes and that's those are the gigs the money gigs also they they want you to pay um play those tunes all over new york and you know florida Yes. <laughs> you know, my band was hired many times to go down to Florida um, to play play these Great American Songbook standards. Right. So, I mean, another way that they're preserved. By the way, yes, I, I think people are coming into the business all the time. There's a young woman named Samara Joy yeah. right now who is just, right. you know, singing this material and making it come alive in her own specific way. And there's always some of that. But the other, the, I consider this to be something of a problem, which is that the kind of people that Steve was just talking about, rockers who are in their 70s or 80s, um, including Sir Paul, you know, who just did Kisses on the Bottom, um, which is an album, not something that he's into, uh, is they put out these, you know, albums of standards. One of them gets played in my house on Saturday mornings for reasons I'm not going to describe. Uh, it is by this gentleman, and I wind up with this version of this song frustratingly stuck in my head. This is C1. Dozens of girls would storm out I had to lock my door Somehow I couldn't warm up To one before What was it that controlled me? What kept my love life lean? My intuition told me you come on the Lady, listen to the rhythm of my heartbeat And you'll get just what I mean Embrace me, my sweet I don't know, should we even say anything about this? At least he sings the verse, right? That's Rod Stewart. I was going to say, at least he sings the verse. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Metcalf, is this, I don't know. Is this bothering you the way that it bothers me? Well, uh, probably. <laughs> Although, as well, we, we were talking about this distinguished artist before the show came on. And Joel did generously point out that, you know, even if, even if we don't like his particular take on some of this stuff, at least he's doing his part to keep it alive, I suppose. And, you know, we should 
possibly be grateful for that. Yeah. Um, I, I think the difference is that there are some people, and Sir Paul is probably in this category, people who are rock and rollers or, or, or singer-songwriter, pop artists, who've had a lifelong relationship with this material. And I, I remember reading somewhere about people coming back from some big all-star celebrity rock you know, benefit or something. And they were back in somebody's Upper West Side apartment and Billy Joel sat at the piano and everybody gathered around and sang rock and roll tunes. And then Billy Joel segued to standards and everybody fell away except for Sting and his mm-hmm. wife. And I think there was one other person. And then this guy, uh, Gene, we're going to play a C2. This guy who definitely has a relationship with this music. Gee, it's great after staying out late Walking my baby back home Arm and arm over meadow and farm by the way, Metcalf, that lyric was written by the same guy who wrote the lyric to Are You Lonesome Tonight? Just a little bit of trivia. But, you know, I think when James Taylor does this stuff, it, sure. it seems genuine, right? Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. Well, and of course, I don't know. I like his voice better. <laughs> There's that, too. We uh, pretty much have to, well, Joel, just a quick reaction to James Taylor, and then we're going to have to say goodbye. But Oh, he yeah. can do no wrong. He can sing the songbook. And he's also a storyteller. He puts that first and foremost, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, first of all, this has been a lot of fun. I wouldn't mind doing it again. Uh, I think we have exactly the right guests, the guests that we want here. Uh, but, you know, thank you for spending some time with us today listening to this music. And as you go into Labor Day weekend, you know, you might consider just adding, I mean, I don't know, I'm driving to Boston. So we'll definitely be listening to this, some of this kind of stuff. But once again, thank you, uh, first of all, to everybody who worked on the show, especially Gene, who had to show us a lot of patience, uh, and to Jonathan, who was pulling together all this stuff. Uh, but special, special Thanks to Joel Lurie, vocalist, songwriter, voiceover artist, and band leader. Steve Metcalf, founder and director of Garmony Punk Concert Series at the University of Hartford Heart School. The next time we do this, we have to talk about Doris Day, who was actually on the list, and we had a cut, and we all this kind of stuff, and there just wasn't any time. But if you want to l- learn a song, listen to Doris Day, sing it. If you want to just be intimidated by how well somebody else can sing it, you might want to listen to Shirley Jordan. Here we go. Dancing, but making music playing. When the band begins to leave the stand, folks start to roam. As we waltz home, cheek to cheek we'll be. Come on, come on, come on and dance with me. Hey, cutes, put on your bassy boots and dance with me. Romance with me. What an evening for some terpsichore Handsome face, I know a swinging place Come dance with me Romance with me on a crowded floor And while the rhythm pings Oh, what lovely things I'll be saying For what is dancing but making love set to music playing When the band begins to leave the stand And folks start to roam As we waltz home Cheek to cheek we'll be Come on, come on, come on Come on, come on, come on Come on, come on Come on, come on, come on and dance with me